For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in favorable times I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way. So that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have recorded for us your goodness, your grace, the ways that you have ministered through apostles and saints of old, the ways that you call us to be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors on your behalf to a lost and dying world. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that our affections would not be distracted by the things that this world claims will satisfy, but that our affections will be taken with you, Lord Jesus, who alone can satisfy our every desire, our every need, our deepest need to be made right with the living and true God. Lord God, we know that those around us need also to be made right with you, and they may try through their own good deeds or through their own thinking, to be made right with you. But there is only one way. It's the blood of Christ that saves. We rejoice that this is the case. We receive this by faith, knowing that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ brings salvation for us and for them also. We pray that our hearts and minds would be open to your word, preparing us to proclaim your goodness to a lost and dying world. We pray that this morning that there are those who are gathered here that don't know you or who are objects of your wrath that this morning your holy spirit would move through the preaching of your word and today would be the day of salvation that this is the favorable time for those souls lord you are sovereign you are great you are a god worthy of all praise you are mighty beyond measure we thank you that you forgive sins that you may be feared May our hearts tremble before you, not in terror of judgment, but in joy that our great sin has met a great Savior. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. There are two housekeeping items that you have to pay attention to when you assume this position. One is, do you know where your watch is and can you see it? 
And the other is, is the microphone working? And I think I got a yes. Great. We remember Pastor Frank and Pastor Greg this morning uh, in their absence from us. We remember them in prayer, and it's my privilege to open the Word of God with you again. So with no further ado, let's turn in the Bible to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Now, as we are turning there, let me lay out the context. Acts 22 begins by a man asking for time to talk. This is the Apostle Paul. He is standing on the steps of a building, and he wants to address a crowd. Paul is on the steps of a Roman barracks. The crowd is calling for his life, and he turns to the Roman commander in whose custody he is, and he says, can I talk to these people? And what we are about to read is what Paul says to a mob who wants to see him dead. Acts chapter 22 and verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, in other words, the Christian church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there, Christians, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You have spoken to us, and you are our strength, our God, and our Redeemer. Amen. Some of you may know that the praise team meets for a devotional and a time of prayer before the service each Sunday morning. 
Well, today I had the privilege of being part of that mini-service, and John read the following devotional, and he read these words. He read, The feebleness of the church is being criticized today, and the criticism is justified. One reason for the feebleness is... How would you finish that sentence? A few weeks ago, I was teaching in our adult Bible class, and I asked them a similar question. I said, in your opinion, what is the most urgent need of the Christian church today in the United States of America? How would you answer that question? That's a great one. What explains the state of the church today, and what do you think is the greatest need? It was a great discussion. Some said, well, we we need more love. Others, we need more unity. We need to overcome these divisions. Still others, well, what we need is more passion for missions. All great answers. My answer would be taken from the words of Dr. David Wells, who was a Christian theologian and teacher, who wrote this not long ago. He said the most urgent need of the church today is the recovery of the gospel as the Bible reveals it to us. The most urgent need of the church today is the recovery of the gospel. What is the best remedy for for coldness and lack of love? What is the best remedy for divisions and discord among Christians? Well, wouldn't we say that the remedy for all of that is to put first and foremost the teaching of the gospel in the New Testament and the living of the gospel in the New Testament. But you see, the minute you ask that question, you've just begged another question. If the recovery of the gospel is so important, what's the gospel? Who's to say what the gospel really is? There's the confusion. What is Christianity? Better yet, what's a Christian? How would we define what a Christian is? How does a person become a Christian? And where do you find the answer to all of those questions? Well, I would suggest to you that it's right where we are today in the words before us in the book of the Acts of the New Testament. One place to find out the authoritative answer to the question, what is the gospel, what is a Christian, and what is Christianity, is in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I would suggest to you today that apart from the life and the resurrection and the cross of Jesus Christ, the single most important event in human history is the conversion of of the Apostle Paul. Oh, it happened. Don't doubt, it happened. We've got four proofs in our text that it happened. First of all, we have Paul's own testimony. Was Paul crazy? Was it all a matter of psychology? Was it all in his head? Well, Paul, three times in the book of Acts, goes through it, one one detail after another. And this time he does it under life and death 
pressure. Now, if you knew something happened and it was just a dream and a figment of your imagination, would you stick to that story when your life was on the line? The Apostle Paul refers to his own conversion again and again and again throughout the New Testament. But notice what other testimonies are here. First of all, we have the testimony of his companions. This was not done in a corner. This was not done in a closet. This was happened. This conversion happened in front of other people. Now, true, his companions did not understand what was happening, and they didn't understand the voice, but they knew there was a voice, and they knew that this happened to Paul. But we have even more proof. How about his enemies? If there was ever a time when a group of people could say he's full of it, it's all a bunch of hogwash. It's fake news. This would have been the time. It's a fake dossier. But try as they might, his enemies could not disprove this event. And so they persecuted him and persecuted him not once, not twice, but for decades. His own enemies testified to the reality of what happened. But we have a fourth proof, and that's the church's testimony. We are told here and elsewhere that in the beginning, when this first happened, the church didn't even believe it. No way that this man, who was our greatest enemy, is all of a sudden converted to Jesus Christ. And their own unbelief had to be overcome again and again by the undeniable fruits of what was true Christian conversion. You see, this is very important. The conversion of the Apostle Paul proves that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It is undeniable. It proves not only that Christ rose from the dead, but that he ascended to heaven. That all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, and that he rules and reigns the lives of men and women from heaven today. He lives, and he spoke, and he appeared to the Apostle Paul. Proof that Christ is the Jewish Messiah promised in the Old Testament. What do we read? Who are you, Lord? And in verse 8, he said to me, I am Jesus. He lives. Believe it. Believe it. This proves the Apostle Paul's conversion that Christianity is supernatural. Now, for 150 years, liberals of all stripes have been trying to prove the opposite. The idea is, is that all religion basically comes from human beings. Somebody somewhere thought it up. Where did Hinduism come from? Where did Islam come from? Whatever the religion is, it arises because of the needs of a community. The need of a community to bind together and to worship a deity. But it all comes from men and women. And the same is true with Christianity. How did Christianity start? Well, Christianity was something the disciples invented 
after their beloved teacher died. And in order to keep the teachings of Jesus and to keep the spirit of Jesus, the Christian church was formed. It's a human institution. And being a Christian is something that you just, well, you, you adopt. You take it up, like you, you take up a hobby. Now, you will notice that the Apostle Paul's conversion contradicts all that. The Apostle Paul's conversion was what? It wasn't something that he invented, thought up, decided I'm going to change and do the opposite thing and start a new religion. Paul's conversion was an act of the sovereign God. Here's how Paul puts it. For the same God who said, let light shine in darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How does anyone ever come to see the human Jesus of Nazareth as the glory of God himself, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity? How does that ever happen, says Paul? Paul says it takes an act of God so powerful, it's like when God created the world. God has to create that in your soul and in mine. Otherwise, Christianity will never happen. Christianity is supernatural. It comes from God. The Apostle Paul's conversion, though, proves something else. It proves the power of the gospel. Now, our brother Tim read before us a few minutes ago Paul's own description. He said, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He, he didn't decide to reform himself. He didn't decide to take up religion. He didn't do it because his parents made him. He is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. All this is from God. Remember what Paul was like before this day. Was Paul a happy person? No, the Bible describes him as being furious. He was mad day in and day out. Paul did not sleep well at night. Paul was full of inner turmoil and conflict, just like our culture. If there was ever a man who was not at peace... It was Saul of Tarsus. Afterward, the rest of his life, he completely changed. Now there was peace. It was Paul in prison who said, Rejoice! Again I say, rejoice! How can that happen? It was Paul who risked his life again and again for the very Jesus that he was persecuting. He went from a messed up, angry, psychologically and emotionally mess to the most stable, mentally ordered, happy and productive individual you could imagine. Can the gospel change somebody? Paul holds himself out as proof that the gospel of Jesus Christ can change anyone. He says, you think of somebody bad? You think your daughter will never come to Christ? You think your parents will never hear? You think that person across town will never hear? That group, that country? 
Paul says, look at me. I was the least likely Christian on the face of the earth. Is there someone in your life today that you've lost hope over? As long as the Apostle Paul and his description stands, there is no reason to lose hope over anyone. This conversion proves the authority of Paul's religion. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Should you believe that? Why? You know, there are a lot of people who have a lot of trouble with what Paul said about things. Because Paul talked in detail about things that can get very uncomfortable. Paul talked about the role of women in the church. Paul talked about the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Paul talked about church government. Paul talked about what you should eat and drink and how you should treat other people. Paul talked specifically about the details of the Christian life. And there are those who say today, you can't listen to all that. This is the word of a man who was an old-time Pharisee who brought the traditions of misogyny and legalism into the church. And we've got to cut and paste when you come to Paul. Now, I would show you today Acts chapter 22. Where does Paul get his authority? Does it come from him? No. The authority of the New Testament and the authority of the Apostle Paul rests on the authority of Jesus Christ. It is Christ himself who called Paul and Christ himself who taught Paul, as Paul himself said. The authority of the New Testament is proven by this conversion. But let's go one step further. This conversion shows what true Christianity really is. And it shows what a true Christian is. Paul frequently displays his own conversion as a model for all conversions. As a model for what happens when a person becomes a Christian. Now immediately someone says, wait a minute, Roger. Do you mean to tell me that in order to be a Christian, and in order to be truly converted, I've got to get knocked down on the road to Damascus? Paul says, my conversion is a model. It is typical of all true conversions. Not in terms of its circumstances, but in terms of its substance. To be truly converted to Christ doesn't mean you have to be knocked down, see blazing light, hear a sounding voice, and have your eyes blinded for three days. Those are the circumstances. No, when the Holy Spirit moves, there's great variety. The Holy Spirit overcomes our resistance and changes our hearts in different ways. So, for instance, there's the young child who's grown up in a Christian home and, and becomes a Christian, and it's almost like nothing happened. That, that person, some of you may be in this category. You grew up in Christian homes. You heard the gospel from uh, early childhood. And it's hard for you ever to remember when you weren't a Christian. 
That's a beautiful thing. Some of you may have come to Christ at a definable moment. I knew when God touched me, I believed it right then, I knew that I was born again on Tuesday. I envy those people. I wasn't like that. I have no idea when I was born again. None. But you see, all of us who are in the kingdom and who name the name of Christ can say this. I once was blind, but now I see. I don't know how I got from there to there, but I know today I'm over here. It's the substance that counts. Paul's conversion is typical, he tells us, because of its results. When the Holy Spirit comes and moves, what happens? Well, you ask two questions, and you'll always ask two questions. When God touches a human heart, two questions are always asked again and again. When Saul of Tarsus was stricken, he had but two questions to ask. And in these two questions consists the whole of the Christian life. You never stop asking these questions. These two questions that he asked on the road to Damascus are the South Pole and the North Pole of the Christian life. They're the East and the West of true Christian piety. It's the beginning and the end of Christian living. And we want to study those two questions today. Are you a Christian? Well, test yourself about these two questions. Are you a weak Christian or are you a strong Christian? Strong Christians are strong. Not because they can do 100 push-ups a day or recite 20 prayers or hold church office. Strong Christians are strong to the degree that they keep asking these two questions. Wherever saving faith is found, it's sure to take this position. These are the twin keynotes of the Christian life. These questions are the governing power of Christ over your life. And whether Christ governs your life is measured by whether or not you ask these two questions. So let's look at them. What's question number one? Question number one is found in verse 8. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Now there's a way to ask that that's the answer of unbelief. It's a question of unbelief. You can ask that in a demanding way. Who do you think you are, Lord? You can ask that in a challenging way. Show me your credentials, Lord. Who are you? Pharaoh asked that, didn't he? Remember what Pharaoh said to Moses? Moses said, God says, Pharaoh, let my people go. What did Pharaoh respond? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and you're not going. Exodus 5, 2. There's a way you can ask that question that's not what Paul is doing. Well, then what is Paul is doing? He is saying this. He's saying, Lord, who are you? Lord, 
Until now, I thought I knew you. I thought I had you all figured out, Lord. Well, you were the Lord of Gamaliel. I heard Gamaliel talk about you in seminary. I, I knew that God. I thought you were the God of Phariseeism, the God of the synagogue. I knew that God. I thought you were the God of my fathers. I knew that God. But you're not that God. Lord, who are you? And isn't that the way it is with us? We know the God of grace on the Ashley. Not hard to find out who that God is. Just read the Confession of Faith. I, I know who that God is. Grace is God. I know who my Sunday school teacher's God is. I can tell you exactly what my Sunday school teacher thinks. I know who my parents' God is. I hear about it every week. When I was a student in college, I was a religion major. And for four years, I heard about God. All of my professors had a God, and I could tell you after four years, all the gods of my professors as they debated them back and forth. I knew who those gods were. And as I visited churches, I heard about the, the Presbyterian church's God, and the Methodist Church is God, and the Baptist Church is God. Until one day, the true and the living God said, Roger, Roger. Yeah, you. What did Paul hear right before this question? Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? You see, his question was a personal question. This God that was my parents' God, all of a sudden, is talking to me. He's addressing me. It's me now that he's having dealings with. And I don't understand this God. I don't understand what's going on inside of me. I don't understand what this God is doing. But I know this. I am in the hands of the living God. I can't deny that. My life is no longer my own. I was knocked off. I was stopped in my tracks. And now I'm being convicted of sin. And this is no place I have ever been before. And all of a sudden... We start wondering about the God who's dealing with us. Do you know who that God is? This is a question of fear. When Paul says, who are you, Lord? This is what the Bible calls the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. Remember what Paul says later. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling knowing that God works in you both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Paul never got over this aspect, the fear and trembling part of dealing with the living God. When God said to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? What happened? He was convicted of sin. Do you mean to tell me that everything I have been living for up until this time has been wrong? That's what the Holy Spirit will do. 
the Holy Spirit will come and say, no, no. That area of your life that you wouldn't let me touch, no, that's sin. And so there is always this element in true Christian experience of the fear of God and realizing God can do whatever he wants with me. And he is not obligated to me at all to save me. Indeed, my sin has rendered me guilty before him. You remember Luke had this experience, or I'm sorry, Peter had this experience in the Gospel of Luke. The, the uh, fishermen were fishing, couldn't catch anything all night. Christ said, cast your, cast your nets in the deeper water. They brought in a catch that they could barely contain, and the boat started to sink. And Peter, realizing that this Christ was not who he thought he was, Peter thought he knew Jesus. But all of a sudden, he saw a Jesus that he had not bargained on. And Peter said, Lord, depart from me. I am a man who is a sinner. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, O oh Lord. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? It's a question of fear. But you will notice something else. It's also a question of wonder and worship and adoration. Because in that question, who are you, Lord, is the wonder of Paul that said, if God is the God who he just said he was, and if I am doing this and living apart from him, and if this has incurred his wrath against my sin... How come I'm not dead yet? If I have been persecuting the church of the living God and not even realized what I was doing, how come I'm not in hell yet? You see, Paul realizes in this question that God has revealed himself not to curse Paul, but to save him. There's mercy. There's mercy in this question. There's mercy in God. You remember that famous hymn, that Negro spiritual, What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. That is in this question. The same heart that says, I've sinned against the Lord, is the same heart that says, I have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. There is mercy with the Almighty. And the same God that has declared me a sinner declares me cleansed, clean, and accepted in Christ. And when that happens to you, when that happens to me, if it's real and it's true, there's only one response. Oh, Lord, who are you? Oh, the mercy and the glory of God. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans, talking about this very thing, talking about God's mercy in Christ.
Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who are you, Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Well, there's only one response. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Have you ever felt that? I know that you have. That's what we're talking about. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's true Christianity. Well, there's one other thing we want to say. This is a question of knowledge and foreknowledge. It's a hunger to know God more. Who are you, Lord? We ask that every week. Lord, show me Yourself again. I need to have my vision of You expanded. I don't understand You in this area, Lord. Who are You here? Who are You there? Who are You in our church? Who are You at my work? I need to understand You more, Lord. And so it's a prayer that God in His glory would show Paul more of Himself Lord, how can I know you more? The first thing this means is, Lord, I've heard that you are Jesus of Nazareth. What I need is to be clearer in my understanding of who you are. Do you see how important doctrine is? The true Christian always wants more doctrine. Why? So I can read it and fall asleep because it's so boring? No, I need to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I think it's a good idea when we read our confession of faith periodically in our family meetings and so forth. We want to know more of what that means about who the Lord is. What is eternal life? Christ said, Lord, eternal life is knowing you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do we want eternal life? Have we got eternal life? If we do, we will always be asking that question. Paul summed up his whole life in a Roman prison in Philippians 3 by saying this, you know, I, I, was, I was hot stuff. I was a hot shot. I was famous. I had accomplishments. I won awards. But now, after this, all that's nothing to me compared to what? To knowing Jesus Christ. Oh, that I might know Him in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sufferings. No. When we ask this question, there's no more challenging God, no more arguing with Him, no more debating, no more complaining. No more hiding from God. No more avoiding God. No more excuse making. No, it's just prayer, adoration, and a desire to know Him. Let me ask you, are you wrestling with God today? Paul wrestled with God. We all wrestle with God. Paul wrestled with God. I'm sick, Lord, and I don't understand why. How come you don't make me well? And you remember what God said. He made Paul pray it again and again, first of all. He made Paul work. 
And then he said, Paul, the answer's no. You're not going to get better from this. But in order that you might know my power, I will let you continue that you can see that my grace is sufficient for you. Are you wrestling with God today about something in your life? Lord, why are you doing this to me? My encouragement to you, based on what we read here, is press on. Keep wrestling. Wrestling with God is a good thing. That's what this means. On the other hand, you might not be wrestling today. You might be at peace. You might be full of wonder and lost in love and praise. That's good, too. Pray on. Praise on. This same question was asked of David in that position. David, at the, at the time when he was given the kingship by God and God reaffirmed his promises, David said, Lord, who am I? Who am I to receive all of these things that you have given to me? Did you wake up today well? I did, kind of. I've got aches and pains, but... Compared to the flu a couple of weeks ago, I woke up well. And so that gives me the freedom to say, Lord, who are you that you could bring me back from that and that you have made me well today? Praise God. But above all else, let us go on and press on to grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the first question. There's question number two. Question number two is found in verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? I want you to notice that these two questions go together. If you are asking that first question, you will always ask that second question. And back and forth, and back and forth. This is true Christian experiences. The second question is the cry of surrender. What shall I do, Lord? It is the cry of consecration and of commitment. Are you a leader in our church today? Do you hold church office? Are you part of the music ministry? Are you part of the greeting ministry, the visitation ministry? Are you part of our security team? I had one of the fellows come up to me beforehand today and said, Don't worry, Roger, we've got your back. I, I didn't really understand what he meant until, oh, yeah, that back. Do you participate in the nursery ministry? Do you have a ministry in this church? The degree to which you will be effective is the degree to which you ask this question. This question, you will notice, involves the whole person. Not what shall part of me do. No, what shall I do? The whole of me. We already talked about the importance of the mind getting saved and the importance of believing the truth unto godliness. That's the mind. But then there's the heart, the emotions, 
Then there's the will, the chooser, volition. The whole person has to be saved, and the whole person must be saved the whole time, the whole of life. Paul doesn't say, what must I do, Lord, today? Now, tomorrow, I, I got that covered. Yeah, Sunday, fine. Monday, I, got, I can handle it. No. You will notice here why we say that the teaching of the carnal Christian is error. Some call it heresy. It's that serious of an error. That teaching says you can have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. You can split them up. Brethren, look at what Paul says. What must I do, Lord? Do you hear any qualifications there? Do you hear any limitations? Do you hear any bargaining? Do you do this? No. It's Savior. It's priest. It's prophet. It's king. It's Lord. What must I do, Lord? Now, this is a beautiful question. I want to just quickly break it down into three most important elements for me today. And the first element of this question is that there is an element of humility here. Do you see that? Now, think about today and the messages that we hear from our culture. Paul was like that. Paul was a man who was self-confident. He was self-assured. Paul seems to have no doubt as to what he ought to be doing at any given time. We would call that kind of a man today self-confident, a man of decision, a man of energy. He he was apt to go his own way. He was self-directed. Paul didn't lack courage, and he didn't lack passion. What he lacked was humility. You see, Paul would ask the question, what shall... I do, Lord. I, in my learning, in my skill, in my strength. But that had to go. Paul was self-led. But now there's a totally new note. From here on out, he would be God-led. The question was now, what shall I do, Lord? And that's the change that makes a person a Christian. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Romans 8.14 Our Lord Himself, in all of His perfect humanity, never got beyond that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, this is what I want, but not what I want but your will be done. And Paul, from here on out, always referred to himself in his letters as Paul, the bondservant of God, the servant of Jesus Christ. And that must be our spirit today. Now, the minute we say that, we've got to get into the second element. There is an element of dignity and honor here in this question. The minute we say... What shall I do, Lord? You call the shots. I will be Christ-led. What is the immediate objection of the human heart? Doormat. Now, we laugh. 
We laugh. But ladies, if you watch TV, and you watch the news, and you read the media, and the books, and listen to the experts, etc., etc., of our culture, what do you hear about what it means to be a woman? Pursue your own path. Fulfill your own potential. Don't be held down. Be whoever you want to be. Follow your own heart. Pursue your own dreams. That was Saul of Tarsus. And when someone comes along and says, I am a woman of God, I follow Christ, the immediate response is, that's the whole problem. And that's exactly why womanhood got to where it is today. The position and the mentality of subordination. That's the message. Tell me I'm wrong. This is a real fight. And men, am I not right? Am I not right in saying the same thing is true of you and me? Tell a teenager who wants to be a Christian what it's like to resist peer pressure. You want to do what? You're not going to do what? Why? Dude, who are you? Do you hear the contempt? What we must understand here is this question does not mean doormat. When you go from self-led to Christ-led, no, 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 you're not going downward, you're going upward. Because in these words is dignity. Dignity and honor come from taking our place where God puts us and doing what we do as unto Him, whatever that is. That's true dignity. Let me give you an illustration. There's Billy Smith. Now, Billy Smith is a 17-year-old, and Billy's a mess. He's a problem to himself. He's a problem to his parents. He got kicked off the basketball team. He, he's in detention half the time. Billy made it through high school by the skin of his teeth. Now what's Billy going to do? Well, how often do we hear, you know what Billy needs? He needs to go into the Army. Billy needs the Army to shape him up. So in Billy goes. And we see Billy six weeks later after basic training, and we cannot believe our eyes. There's Billy Smith, and he's standing up straight at attention. His chest is out with self-respect. His chin is up. He looks you in the eyes. He says, yes, sir, no, sir. And when you say, Billy, is that really you? Did they take you and do something with you? He says, I am Private William Smith. Sir, now I ask you, what happened to Billy? Well, I'll tell you what happened to Billy. They made him exercise, you know, four and five miles a day and do 100 push-ups a week. That'll do. Okay. Well, they got some order. They got some structure in his life. Okay. Well, he needed some discipline. He got discipline. Okay. But I would suggest to you, those are all secondary. What's Billy got that he did not have before? He's got honor. He's got dignity. He's got self-respect. Where did that come from? It's because now Private William Smith is a man under orders. 
He's under orders. That's where true dignity lies. And now Paul, on the road to Damascus, by that question acknowledges that he is a man who is under orders. By this question, Paul added dignity and worth to his life. A Christian is nothing but a sinner coming under the authority of the commander of the Lord's hosts, the captain of us all. But then let's hurry on to the last element, because with this dignity and honor come true power. Coming under orders, finding our place in God's great and powerful plan in his kingdom is the source of our own power. Now, you probably don't know this, but tonight there's going to be a football game. I want you to picture something. Picture the Philadelphia Eagles offense. They trot out onto the field, and they all huddle up. And there are five people in that huddle that nobody knows their names. They're the linemen. Nobody, all, they're, all we know them by is a number. They're the lowest paid people on the team. They're linemen. One lineman says to himself as he's bending over, you know what, on this play, they're not going to tell me what to do anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. You know what, this subordination stuff, this submission stuff, that's for the birds. No, that's, that's what doormats do. So on this play, when the guy says, hike, I'm going to block whoever I want to block. And I'm going to go wherever I want. And that's the spirit of the world in which we live. They think that's liberty. And that's power. Where does that lineman's power come from? Because there's a coach. And there's a game plan. And the play that's being called relates to the game plan that comes from the coach. And in that huddle, I hear that play, and I get my assignment. Well, I don't like this assignment. The quarterback gets paid too much. I'd like to see him try to block this linebacker. No. That's my assignment. I know what to do. And in that knowledge is my power. All I've got to do is block that guy in front of me. I don't need to care about what's going on outside of me, who's doing what job. Just block my guy and be confident that my role fits into his role, fits into his role, fits into the whole role. And when we are all doing what God has called us to do, that's our true power. Well, I'm chronically ill. I'm weak. I, I don't even know what's wrong with me. They haven't even diagnosed it yet. Well, I have a life-threatening disease. I, I, I don't know if they're going to cure it or not. If there's anybody who doesn't have any power, it's me. You want to know a group of people who believe they don't have any power? The nursery workers. They're, if you want to feel powerless, go back and work in the nursery. Well, what do we tell those people? 
We tell them that as long as you're asking the question, Lord, I don't know why I'm here, but what I need to know is, here, what shall I do? Well, today, all I want you to do is suffer. That's what I'm calling you to do today. All I want you to do today is lie there in bed. There may be other orders, other marching orders on another day, but for today, it's bed. Today, it's the nursery. Today, it's whatever. That's all we have to know in order to have true power. Who is the most powerful person you have ever personally met in your life? The person who you would say has influenced me more than any other human being. I would say, personally, it's a woman whose name I can't even remember. I met her when I was age 22 and joined a particular church and went, was going to the prayer time, and they'd always be mentioning so-and-so, and for the life of me, I can't remember her name. She had cancer. And they all talked about her great testimony. One day, I had the chance to meet her. She made it to church, and it was very obvious the Lord was calling her home. Her face was radiant. She smiled. And even in pain, she was able to say, Praise God, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And with that testimony, she answered a hundred academic questions that Roger Smarty Pants Beardmore thought he could ask. Blew them away. I wanted whatever you've got, I want. That's the power of God. And that's what God does when he moves in the human heart. May God put us in us a spirit that asks these two questions today. And may we resolve that we will make that last question, what shall I do, Lord? The compass for the journey of our Christian lives. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may you do in our hearts today and in the hearts of those for whom we pray what you did to the, the persecutor extraordinaire, Saul of Tarsus, long ago. Father, we know that Jesus lives and that he is active in the lives of men and women. May he be active in the life of our church and in our personal lives by leading us to ask again and again these two questions. For Jesus' sake we pray.